Now, after our hard slog through the seven-year tribulation, the improved but decidedly not sinless millennium, and the unpleasant but satisfying final judgment of the great white throne, we now come to the last two chapters of the Revelation and certainly the most pleasant, joyful portion of the last thing's narrative. It's the good news. Let's get right into it. Let's read the first portion, the first five verses of chapter 21, please. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Verses 1 to 5 serve as a preamble of sorts, a summary of what is to follow about the new heaven and new earth. One of the best arguments to refute the position held by, for example, J.A. Sice, that this new earth will be just the old one cleaned up the best argument found to refute that is found in Isaiah 65. Turn to that quickly while I read it. Isaiah chapter 65, beginning with verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and, for people for, and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. The Hebrew word translated create there in that passage is bara. As it's written, it's just br, which always, re always refers to divine creativity and means something from nothing, not something from something else, not something reconstituted. It means something utterly new from nothing. As we saw in our previous session, everything that was before, everything has now passed away. It's gone. 
There is nothing from which to build something else. It's gone. And that is precisely what God in the person of Christ Jesus does. Now let me stick in a sidebar here. There are two predominant themes throughout the eschaton. Israel and Christ. It's not that the church is not there, but it, along with its individual members, is not the lead but supporting character. The final days are all about reestablishing the relationship between God and his chosen people. First, through punishment and cleansing. We've seen plenty of that. Then, through exaltation. The second theme is Christ. What are the important mile markers, the dramatic high points in the narrative? They are all centered on Christ Jesus. It begins with the rapture, Christ coming for his church. The tribulation comes to an abrupt end with the return of Christ to earth. He then rules for 1,000 years on earth. Immediately after that, Christ Jesus judges the wicked. And that's what we saw at the end of the message this morning. And now we see him as the one creating the new heaven and new earth. And the creation of, or we shall see the orchestrating of the arrival of the new Jerusalem. Earlier in this study, I mentioned how in the eschaton, a distinction between God the Father and God the Son, the Lamb, are blurred. And especially from here on out. If you think about it, it really doesn't matter, does it? As Pastor Jeremy brought out, one does what the other one does. They are virtually identical in, in their action, in their purpose. So it really doesn't matter. Even more so than anywhere else in Scripture, from here on out, God's Word seems to emphasize their unity. You can be reading along and you think, well, sounds like God. And then in the next sentence, it'll say, the Lamb, or, or I am Alpha and Omega. Well, wait a minute. Chapter 1, that's Christ. Well, who are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And it's just as Jesus explained during his ministry on earth, as we've seen in John 5. So verse 1 ends with, and there is no longer any sea. This phrase, <clears throat> this, with its enigmatic placement, can be interpreted two different ways, neither of which cancel out the other. Both are true. Both can be, depending on what you want to believe, or both are. First, it can be taken literally. Most commentators seem to do that. In the new world order, there will be no need for the oceans. What is so evident in this text from here on out is that we have no idea what this is going to look like. The new earth may be flat. Who knows? Doesn't really matter, does it? God is creating it. God in Christ 
is creating it. And this passage says there'll no longer be any sea. And we may go about our daily lives today without giving this much thought, but life on earth now is decidedly water-based. It's It's like when the power goes out in the middle of a storm, and you go to do something, you realize, oh, wait a minute, I can't do that. There's no electricity. Well, then I'll do this. Nope, can't do that either. No electricity. This means there'll be no more water. There'll be no more weather. Our weather comes from the oceans. Nearly three-fourths of this current earth is covered by water. Vast seas that generate and influence the earth's weather. Present human bodies are more water than anything else. Our flesh is 65% water. The little fat thrown in there. And our blood is 90% water. Without water, we die. Without water, this earth would die. This earth. If we take this phrase literally, and there's no reason not to, the new earth will have a totally different hydrological and ecological system than the old. We won't recognize it. We wouldn't recognize it. Second, and I believe more important, is the metaphorical interpretation often gleaned only from the subtext of certain passages of Scripture is the idea of the sea representing evil, danger, separation. We've seen it here in Revelation as the metaphorical birthplace of the beast, Antichrist. He comes up out of the sea. And one of the places from which the dead come, chapter 20, verse 13 And Isaiah 57, verse 20 reads, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. It's not that the sea is portrayed as evil, but to the ancient Hebrews especially, it represented the perils of the unknown, something in the depths of which one might be forever lost. It just wasn't a good place to be. Thus, with both of these, we see that the new earth will be created with very different ecological laws and that on it there will be no evil, no sin. That is, we cannot describe it further because in both respects, we're talking about something utterly foreign to our experience. We have no concept of living without water or weather. What would we talk about? Oh, football. <laughs> silly, silly me. And we have no concept of living without sin, either in ourselves or in those around us. Sadly, but it's true. We may long for it, we may pray for it, but we have no experience with that. Would that we did. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Opinions vary, of course, as always, but there's much evidence to substantiate the position 
which, by the way, is held by Walvard and MacArthur, that the new Jerusalem has not just been created like the new heaven and new earth, but has previously been in heaven and now descends out of heaven from God. Please turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at something right now, and then we're going to come back here later on. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that Abraham went out in obedience looking for something that did not exist on earth at the time. Verse 10 tells us that, quote, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, end quote. In the next chapter, he writes with greater specificity in verses 22 to 23, verse 11, chapter 11, I mean. But you have come to Mount Zion. Notice, as I read this, picture in your mind this passage in Revelation. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That describes a heavenly Jerusalem. MacArthur goes so far as to say that, quote, all of heaven is currently contained in the new Jerusalem, end quote. But then a few paragraphs later states that, quote, the new Jerusalem is not heaven, but heaven's capital, end quote. Well, giving Pastor MacArthur the benefit of the doubt, I think what he means by that first statement is that all the inhabitants of heaven, all of the redeemed, are in the new Jerusalem. All of the redeemed saints in heaven. When we go to heaven, we go to live in the heavenly Jerusalem. It does seem quite feasible that this heavenly Jerusalem descending from heaven to the new earth has indeed been the dwelling place for all those believers who have preceded us in death. If this is true, it sheds fresh light on something Jesus told his disciples in John 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, verses 20 to 3, an accurate description of the eternal state with Christ. Heaven's Jerusalem is the Father's house. And in it are many dwelling places for those who are his. Every believer goes to heaven with a rental agreement in hand, passing through the pearly gates. We hand it to the doorman and say, Jesus made my reservation for me. Sidebar. For Americans, the King James Version mansions is misleading. Not inaccurate, just misleading. To us, a mansion is a huge, expensive house for one family with many bedrooms and many bathrooms. 
The British understand it to me, and it is indeed the King James Version. The British understand it to mean an apartment house, such and such mansions. That's an apartment house. With many dwelling places within for different families, which is how the Greek monai is used here. Jesus is not preparing a huge manor house for every believer, what an American would call a mansion, but an apartment or a simple dwelling place in the city of Jerusalem. Again, we don't know what it'll be like. Might be one of these. Might be palatial. Who knows? It's a dwelling place in a place with many dwelling places. Later in this chapter, we'll have a more detailed description of this new Jerusalem. Now, verses 3 to 5. If Jesus' pronouncement in verses 3 to 4 does not stir your soul, (laughs) as it did in our initial reading, I'm with you, I'm with you. Then I recommend you check for your pulse. Here is without a doubt one of the grandest, most exhilarating statements any believer will ever hear. Revelation 21, let me read three and four again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, that is Christ Jesus, saying, behold, The tabernacle of God is among men. Not that men are with the tabernacle in heaven, but God is here with us. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things like that have passed away. Literally, verse 3 reads, quote, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will tabernacle with them. The same word used as a noun and a verb. He will tent with them. He will dwell with them. Here again is dual imagery. The tabernacle was the forerunner of the temple, the place where God was worshipped, where God met with men. But the word also means a tent, a dwelling place. Here the place where God lives. This is one of the most profound statements I can imagine. The Lord God of the universe, the first member of the triunity of the Godhead, when this world and this universe reaches its final, eternal state, it will never change, will deign to live with his people. He wants to live with his people. God himself will be among them. To me, that's breathtaking. What was true for 33 years in Emmanuel will now be true for eternity. As if that were not enough, this new earth and new Jerusalem will be absent five miserable experiences that have been a part of humanity since Eve plucked the first fruit from the tree. No more tears, no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no cancer, no heart failure. All those things with which we've become accustomed will have passed away. 
All those things that came out of that original sin that would not exist without it, gone, never to return. Jesus declares, I am making all things new. David Guzik writes, our instinct is to romantically consider innocence as, this is good, tuck this into your brain, this is a good thought. I'm embarrassed I didn't have it myself. David Guzik, our instinct is to romantically consider innocence as man's perfect state and wish Adam would have never done what he did. Isn't that how we think of it? But we fail to realize that redeemed man is greater than innocent man. That we gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. God's perfect state is one of redemption, not innocence. That's good stuff. Well said. We are so short-sighted. We have such a paltry image of what God has in store for us. All we can do is hearken back to what once was and say, gee, I wish we were like that again. He says, no, I got so much in store for you, you can't believe it. Because John is so enthralled by all this, and I'm sure any of us would be, it's necessary for Christ Jesus sitting on his throne to grab his attention. Hey, John, write. I want this recorded. For these words are faithful and true. The next few verses spoken by Christ, identifying himself as he did at the beginning of the revelation, sound as if he's stating something to happen in the future, but it's actually a recapitulation of that which has already taken place. Verses 6 to 8, please. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We could easily spend an entire session in consideration of Jesus' profound declaration, it is done. In lieu of that, I encourage you to do it on your own. Lean back in your prayer closet and contemplate all that Christ and his Father have done throughout man's history up to this day to accomplish this end, both in your life and the lives of all the redeemed. At this point in time, you know, Jesus has said this before. On the cross, it's done, it's finished. Redemption is finished, I've done it. And it's been said earlier in Revelation, and he says it again now, it is done. All these visions revealed to John are scenes from the far future, especially from the apostles' viewpoint. We today may be closer to this future than John, but who can say that it won't be another 2,000 years before they are fulfilled? 
One has the impression that these words from the Lord, perhaps more than any other uttered in the Revelation, are intended for us today, speaking of these in verses 6 to 8, this passage just read. They seem out of place. They seem like, well, wait a minute. What, how does this fit into the narrative? And that's the point. It doesn't really fit into the narrative. We've, we've seen that practice before. Here it's as if the lead character in this immense stage play suddenly turns toward the audience. The scene's going on, and he suddenly breaks character. Christ, he breaks character, steps toward the audience, and breaks that imaginary fourth wall of the proscenium, and he speaks to the audience. I think that's what's happening here. He brings a cautionary speech warning that for every man and woman on earth, there will come in their lifetime a fork in the road. Will he or she choose to follow Christ, to thirst for the water of life and thus accept Christ Jesus as God and to become his child, inheriting the kingdom of righteousness? Or will they remain unbelieving cowards, embracing the immortality in which they were born, ending up in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, dying twice, and the last for all eternity. Just imagine. You die without Christ. You die. And many years later, you're awakened. Given a new body. And immediately you're sent to the lake of fire. Suddenly in verse 9, the scene changes. And one of the seven angels who had one of the bowls of wrath speaks to John. Now, it doesn't say he's still dispensing this bowl. It's just one of the angels who had done that. And now he's coming out and doing this. He says, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. From verse 10 to the end of the chapter, we're granted a detailed picture of the new Jerusalem. Detailed, but not explaining everything. There's still many mysteries. Note that in verse 2, the city was described with a simile, quote, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, end quote. Here in this reprise, the city is described without the simile. Now the city is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, which I take to be a reference to the inhabitants, its inhabitants, the redeemed inside. So there's the picture. The heavenly Jerusalem filled with the redeemed. At one point right now, in verse chapter 21, in the narrative, that city is picked up, brought down to earth with all those inhabitants inside. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. It's God. <laughs> In 
Before we proceed into the description, let's pause and get our bearings. Some expositors say that this scene flips back to the millennium, that this is the millennium temple. But we'll interpret it in a sensible, literal manner, that this scene follows chronologically after the creation of the new heaven and new earth in verse 1. So let's set the scene. The second resurrection of the wicked has occurred. Once they were emptied of the dead, death and Hades are sent to the lake of fire. In a fiery flash, the earth and the heavens, that is the first and second heavens, the immediate atmosphere and the universe, space, are destroyed. They are uncreated. I like that. Leaving only the great white throne of Christ Jesus surrounded by the billions of the unregenerate suspended in nothingness. All have, nothing was found, no place was found for anything else. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Chapter 20, verse 11. All are judged and consigned to the lake of fire. The earth is no more. The universe is no more. Then, in the next sentence, John is shown suddenly the new universe and new earth. Chapter 21, verse 1. We're not told, but we can safely assume that sometime just before or during all this, before the destruction of the earth, all of the redeemed who have been co-ruling on earth during the millennium have been transferred to heaven, specifically heaven's Jerusalem. Do you think about that? Did that occur to you? It occurred to me. I, I was, I was well, but wait a minute. What about all those who've been ruling on earth? They're not mentioned. The earth is destroyed. Well, I don't think they were destroyed with it. So they must be taken up to heaven so that they come down with everyone else. But we're not told. For as heaven's Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God, chapter 21, verse 2 and verse 10, it's called in verse 9, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So everyone from the rapture on through the millennium, everyone. We need to remind ourselves that throughout all these dramatic universal changes, the Lord God remains constant. I do not believe that his heaven, the third heaven, is made new. The heavens that are made new are the atmosphere and the universe. Because when that happens, heaven's Jerusalem is still up there. In fact, many, we'll get into this more next week, but many commentators speak of the earthly Jerusalem come down out of heaven as the umbilical between earth and heaven. Not that earth is the new heaven, but they're somehow mystically combined. That, that God is everywhere. And the Jerusalem on earth is what connects heaven to earth. We need to, re oh, I did that. 
God remains constant, unchanging. He is not new. He did not get changed. He's the same God. What the psalmist expresses in Psalm 102. Let me read that. Psalm 102. Verses 25 to 27. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. As we look at what John passes along to us, we should keep in mind that mortal man with his feet stuck in the clay of this present earth cannot possibly imagine, much less appreciate what this eternal city will actually be like. We'd like to because we're going to be living there for a very long time. It will be impressive. It will be huge. It will be utterly magnificent, but beyond that, we cannot possibly know what it will be like to see it, much less live in it, for we we have nothing with which to compare it. Can you describe transparent gold? Can you imagine pearls the size of city gates? A city 1,500 miles long, and wide and high? That'd be almost like sitting in the front row looking up at the pastor here. 1,500 miles high. There won't be any weather, so we don't have to worry about clouds, right? Maybe we'll be able to see the top. Can you describe what your apartment in it will look like? Let's not try too hard to imagine any of it, for surely all of our imaginings will fall short. I believe some interpreters, even with righteous intentions, nonetheless read the description of this new Jerusalem through fleshly eyes. For example, Morris writes concerning the jewel-encrusted city, quote, John's use of material riches to describe the city is his way of bringing out the very great value of what God has for his people. No, Mr. Morris, that's not it at all. It has nothing to do with us. The glory of this city has nothing to do with what God thinks of us. Alan F. Johnson gets it right. Quote, the symbolism is not meant to give the impression of wealth and luxury, but to point to the glory and holiness of God. There it is. That's it. He's just giving us, he's just giving us the blessing of living in his house. Everything about this city, everything is meant to illustrate the majesty and holiness and righteousness of God. 
It's his presence in it with us that expresses the love of God for his people, that he lets us live with him, that he wants us to live with him. That shows what he thinks of us. He chooses to live with us. We don't need any jewels or gold or silver. It's him. It's Christ Jesus. They are with us. But let's look at the details given to us, beginning in verse 11. There's a wall around the city with 12 gates. Each is a single pearl, verse 21. Three on a side, each bearing the name of a tribe of Israel, verses 12 to 13. Each gate has an angelic gatekeeper, verse 12. The wall is 72 yards, that's 216 feet high, or some say thick. It doesn't really say. So one of its dimensions is 216 feet. In any case, the wall is not the height of the city. It's much shorter. And it's made of jasper stone, verse 18. It's not our modern jasper, which is more opaque, but almost certainly a reference to a perfectly clear, flawless diamond. John writes that the city entire appears as brilliant as if it were one huge, perfect diamond. Verse 11. The foundation of this wall consists apparently of 12 layers of stone. It was not uncommon at the time that you'd have multiple foundations underneath a large building. And this one has 12 layers, 12 foundations, each layer bearing the name of one of Jesus' 12 apostles. Verse 14. These stones are adorned with all sorts of precious jewels, one type of jewel per layer. Verses 19 to 20. The construction of the city is often imagined to be a cube, but could also be a form of a pyramid with God enthroned at the top. That, that could follow. Or it could be something utterly irregular. Things going every which way. It's just the same height as the width and the length. So we don't really know. We're told that the city is approximately... It's between 1,400 and 1,500 square, uh, miles square, as well as 1,500 miles high, verse 16. Verse 18 seems to suggest that the building material of the city is something like gold, yet it's clear like glass, a translucent material with a tinge of gold, perhaps. Verse 18. The street, the main street, or perhaps all of the streets, not really clear. It says it's one singular street in this city made of the same translucent golden material as its walls. Verse 21. It's revealed to John that the city does not include a temple. A dramatic omission, especially for someone living in the first century. Every city at that time, except Jerusalem, of course, would have multiple temples to at least several gods. To have a city without at least one temple, as in Jerusalem, would be like saying there's a city today without a gas station. Actually, that's a pretty good metaphor. Anyway, the word neon refers not to the temple building, but to the innermost shrine. That is the sanctuary, the holy of holies. 
Thus, the better version of this verse is found in Young's literal translation. Quote, and a sanctuary I did not see in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, is its sanctuary and the Lamb. Verse 22. And here again, we could spend an entire session discussing this remarkable aspect of the New Jerusalem. Put succinctly, however, why have a shrine when you already have the literal bodily God in residence? He's there. He lives next door to you. Not just visiting, but permanently in residence. Not as an idol, but the real thing. They are the temple. Similarly, what need have we for the sun or moon when we have the manifest glory of God and the Lamb in permanent residence, sharing their brilliant illumination? Verse 23. Here again, without the seas, without the moon, no weather. We now come at the end of this chapter to a challenging passage, one so troublesome that it has caused many expositors and commentators to claim this is describing not the eternal state, but the millennium. Let's read the last four verses, chapter 21, verses 24 to 27. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. No, I can't be critical of, of some commentator, some interpreter looking at this and saying, well, this has to be the millennium. This doesn't make any sense for the eternal state. I think we can make some sense out of it. It's tempting to conclude that this passage represents a mystery that will not be explained until the day this new city is in place and all believers are in their glorified state. So we might as well just let it lie there as a mystery. But I think we can do better than that admitting that there may still remain some mysteries. I'll be honest and admit that none of the explanations I have read are without problems. Not one is completely satisfying as a sensible alternative, or interpretation, I'm sorry. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. First, the King James versions add a phrase that is absent in all the rest. In the New King James, this version begins, this verse begins, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. Everyone I have read, even older commentaries, quickly dismiss the inclusion of this phrase. M.R. Vincent, 1886, has just one succinct word, omit. This bears all the marks of a marginal gloss that has become an interpolation. Copiers would copy the text, and they might put a little margin, marginal note off to the side. Well, someone later, subsequently, might take that text, that copy, see the marginal note, and stick it in where it and they shouldn't have. It's called an interpolation. And this bears all the marks of that. 
They say, oh, this is confusing. This might help if we add this to it. All of our modern translations, aside from the New King James, uh, say, no, this doesn't belong. On its face, these four verses seem to paint a picture of nations and kings of those nations. The word is ethne, better translated peoples, or better yet, Gentiles. Dwelling outside the walls of the New Jerusalem, going in and out through its gates, being stopped and denied entrance, if not redeemed, probably by the angelic gatekeepers. As verse 27 implies, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Permit me to recommend a suitable and, I hope, satisfying approach to this passage. Look back at verses 7 and 8. These two verses as well seem out of place at first glance. But I suggested that they represented Christ momentarily stepping out of the narrative to speak directly to its readers. I contend that something similar but not identical is going on here. First, let's have some bullet points to be clear. The eternal state on the new earth will not include unbelievers or those not glorified. That is, still unglorified flesh won't be there. The different ecology of the new earth and the absence of water and weather will preclude human beings surviving outside the city. Doesn't, doesn't compute. The eternal state on the new earth will not include sin, period. The population of the eternal state will not grow since there is no evidence whatsoever that it will include sexual congress or babies. Matthew 22, 30. There is every reason to believe that all those who begin in the New Jerusalem will want to remain there. Don't you want to live with God? In His light? That's where the light is. All these being true, we need to find a different explanation for this passage. Happily, one presents itself if we use verses 7 to 8 as a a template of sorts, if we disengage it from the narrative timeline. We've already seen elsewhere in Scripture, for example, Hebrews, where to the saints this city was a very real, tangible, yet future reality. Turn back to Hebrews 11, please, and follow along with me as I read some excerpts that might have a little different color with all of this end times stuff in mind. I'm going to begin with chapter 11, verse 10. For Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. 
See, they're, he's saying they're not talking about where they came from. They're talking about where they're going. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Women, verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, chapter 12, verse 18. It's, here it refers to Israel's experience at Mount Sinai. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind. You've not come to something that scares you to death. But, chapter 12, verse, beginning with verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Note the time-shifting that takes place in some of these passages. The saint's hope was and is today so real, so tangible, it's as if it has already occurred. Quote, but you have come to Mount Zion. Not you will come, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Even though at this writing, this was at least 2,000 years into the future, but they have come. I contend that the passage at the end of Revelation 21 employs a similar time shifting in a backward direction. To wit, let me offer a paraphrase. Stand back, I may get zapped. So a, a para my paraphrase of verses 24 to 27. The nations and kings of this present earth will walk by the light of this future city on a new earth, freely offering whatever glory they possess gladly to their Lord God and the Lamb. This is a city that will never shut its gates, for night has been banished, and besides, there's no threat from outside. All glory and honor in the nations that has ever existed down through the history of man will be gladly placed at the feet of our resident Lord and the Lamb. For this city, this glorious city, will contain nothing defiled, no detestable abomination as before on the old earth, no deceit. Everything in the city and all its citizens will be utterly pure, for only those whose names are found in the Lamb's book of life will be permitted inside. So make sure that you are one of them. That's what Pastor Jeremy was saying in the message today. you got to make the decision now. The fork in the road is now. This is not talking about kings and nations existing outside Somewhere else on the new earth, it's saying they, the, the glory that they had now, now in this time, in this city, belongs to Christ. Let me close with what Alan F. Johnson has to say about this. <clears throat> 
No idolatrous person may enter. Only those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life and thus belong to him through redemption. This should not be taken as implying that on the new earth there will still be unsaved roaming around outside the new Jerusalem, who may now and then enter it by repenting. Instead, the exhortation warns present readers that the only way to participate in the future city is to turn one's loyalties to the Lamb now. I think that tracks, and it's a good way to interpret this last passage. Our Father God, we all look forward to the day when we not just see with our eyes, but we dwell within your city. Whether that is in heaven, if we die before this day, or later, we want to live with you. We're tired of living long distance with you. We know we have your spirit, but it's not the same. We still are in flesh, and we look forward to the day when we're not in flesh with all of its failings and weaknesses. We love you, and we thank you for sharing all this with us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. For those who came in late, I started by saying there's only one more session. No, I'm not looking at you. <laughs> must be some, must be Yehudi. <clears throat> one more session. By next week, we'd like to have all of your charts in envelope with your name on them, turned in to Linda, and then we will put them together for you. See you next week.